Chapter 19, Part 4 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 19, The Communes and the Third Estate, Part 4. The rumor of so many disasters, crimes, and reactions succeeding one another spread rapidly throughout all districts. Thomas de Marle was put under the ban of the kingdom and visited with excommunication by a general assembly of the Church of the Gauls, says Gibert of Nogent, assembled at Beauvais, and this sentence was read every Sunday after Mass in all the metropolitan and parochial churches. Public feeling against Thomas de Marle became so strong that Ingeron de Beau, Lord of Cousset, who passed, says Suger, for his father, joined those who declared war against him in the name of church and king. Louis the Fat took the field in person against him. Men-at-arms, and in very small numbers too, says Gibert of Nogent, were with difficulty induced to second the king, and did not do so heartily, but the light-armed infantry made up a considerable force, and the archbishop of Rheims and the bishops had summoned all the people to this expedition, whilst offering to all absolution from their sins. Tomas de Marl, though at that time helpless and stretched upon his bed, was not sparing of scoffs and insult towards his assailants, and at first he absolutely refused to listen to the king's summons. But Louis persisted without wavering in his enterprise, exposing himself freely and in person leading his infantry to the attack when the men-at-arms did not come on or bore themselves slackly. He carried successively the castles of Crecy and Nogent, domains belonging to Thomas de Marle, and at last reduced him to the necessity of buying himself off at a heavy ransom, indemnifying the churches he had spoiled, giving guarantees for future behavior, and earnestly praying for readmission to the communion of the faithful. As for those folks of Léon, perpetrators of, or accomplices in, the murder of Bishop Gaudry, who had sought refuge with Thomas de Marle, the king showed them no mercy. He ordered them, says Suger, to be strung up to the gibbet, and left for food to the voracity of kites and crows and vultures. There are certain discrepancies between the two accounts, both contemporaneous, which we possess of this incident in the earliest years of the twelfth century, one in the life of Louis the Fat by Chuguer, and the other in the life of Gibert de Nogent by himself. They will be easily recognized on comparing what was said. After Chuguer, in chapter 18 of this history, with what has just been said here after Gibert. But these discrepancies are of no historical importance, for they make no difference in respect of the essential facts characteristic of social condition at the period, and of the behavior and position of the actors. Louis the Fat, after his victory over Thomas de Marle, and the fugitives from Léon, went to Léon with the Archbishop of Rheims, and the presence of the king whilst restoring power to the foes of the commune, inspired them, no doubt, with a little of the spirit of moderation, for there was an interval of peace, during which no attention was paid to anything 
but expiatory ceremonies and the restoration of the churches which had been a prey to the flames. The archbishop celebrated a solemn mass for the repose of the souls of those who had perished during the disturbances, and he preached a sermon exhorting serfs to submit themselves to their masters, and warning them on pain of anathema from resisting by force. The burghers of Leon, however, did not consider every sort of resistance forbidden, and the lords had, no doubt, been taught not to provoke it, for in 1128, sixteen years after the murder of Bishop Godry, fear of a fresh insurrection determined his successor to consent to the institution of a new commune, the charter of which was ratified by Louis the Fat in an assembly held at Compiègne. Only the name of the commune did not recur in this charter. It was replaced by that of peace establishment. The territorial boundaries of the commune were called peace boundaries, and to designate its members recourse was had to the formula, all those who have signed this peace. The preamble of the charter runs, In the name of the holy and indivisible trinity, we, Louis, by the grace of God, King of the French, do make known to all our liege, present and to come, that with the consent of the barons of our kingdom and the inhabitants of the city of Leon, we have set up in the said city a peace establishment. And after having enumerated the limits, forms, and rules of it, the charter concludes with this declaration of amnesty. All former trespasses and offenses committed before the ratification of the present treaty are wholly pardoned. If anyone, banished for having trespassed in past time, desire to return to the town, he shall be admitted and shall recover possession of his property. Accepted from pardon, however, are the thirteen whose names do follow. And then come the names of the thirteen accepted from the amnesty and still under banishment. Perhaps, says Monsieur Augustin Thierry, these thirteen under banishment, shut out forever from their native town at the very moment it became free, had been distinguished amongst all the burghers of Léon by their opposition to the power of the lords. Perhaps they had sullied by deeds of violence this patriotic opposition. Perhaps they had been taken at haphazard to suffer alone for the crimes of their fellow citizens. The second hypothesis appears the most probable, for that deeds of violence and cruelty had been committed alternately by the burghers and their foes is an ascertained fact, and that the Charter of 1128 was really a work of liberal pacification is proved by its contents and wording. After such struggles, and at the moment of their subsidence, some of the most violent actors always bear the burden of the past, and amongst the most violent some are often the most sincere. For forty-seven years after the Charter of Louis the Fat, the town of Léon, enjoyed the internal peace and the communal liberties it had thus achieved. But in 1175, a new bishop, Roger de Rossoy, a man of high birth, and related to several of the great lords, his neighbors, took upon himself to disregard the regimen of freedom established at Léon. The burghers of Léon, taught by experience, applied to the king, Louis the Young, and offered him a sum of money to grant them a charter of commune. Bishop Roger, by himself and through his friends, says a chronicler, a canon of Léon, implored the king to have pity on his church, and abolish the serfs' commune, but the king, clinging to the promise he had received of money, would not listen to the bishop or his friends, and in 1177 gave the burghers of Léon a charter which confirmed their peace establishment 
of 1128. Bishop Roger, however, did not hold himself beaten. He claimed the help of the lords his neighbors, and renewed the war against the burghers of Léon, who on their side asked and obtained the aid of several communes in the vicinity. In an access of democratic rashness, instead of awaiting within their walls the attack of their enemies, they marched out without cavalry to the encounter, ravaging as they went the lands of the lords whom they suspected of being ill-disposed toward them. But on arriving in front of the bishop's allies, all this rustic multitude, says the canon chronicler, terror-stricken at the bare names of the knights they found assembled, took suddenly to flight, and a great number of the burghers were massacred before reaching their city. Louis the Young then took the field to help them, but Baldwin, Count of Hainault, went to the aid of the Bishop of Léon with seven hundred knights and several thousand infantry. King Louis, after having occupied and for some time held in sequestration the lands of the bishop, thought it advisable to make peace rather than continue so troublesome a war, and at the intercession of the Pope and the Count of Hanoi, he restored to Roger de Rossoy his lands and his bishopric on condition of living in peace with the commune. And so long as Louis the Sixth lived, the bishop did refrain from attacking the liberties of the burghers of Léon. But at the king's death in 1180, he applied to his successor, Philip Augustus, and offered to cede to him the lordship of Fair Surois, of which he was the possessor, provided that Philip by charter abolished the commune of Léon. Philip yielded to the temptation, and in 1190 published an ordinance to the following purport. Desiring to avoid to our soul every sort of danger, we do entirely quash the commune established in the town of Léon as being contrary to the rights and liberties of the Metropolitan Church of St. Mary. In regard for justice, and for the sake of a happy issue to the pilgrimage which we be bound to make to Jerusalem. But next year, upon entreaty and offers from the burghers of Léon, Philip changed his mind, and without giving back the lordship of Fair Sirois to the bishop, guaranteed and confirmed in perpetuity the peace establishment granted in 1128 to the town of Léon, on the condition that every year at the festival of all saints they shall pay to us and our successors two hundred livres of Paris. For a century, all strife of any consequence ceased between the burghers of Léon and their bishop. There was no real accord or good understanding between them, but the public peace was not troubled, and neither the kings of France nor the great lords of the neighborhood interfered in its affairs. In 1294, some knights and clergy of the metropolitan chapter of Léon took to quarreling with some burghers, and on both sides they came to deeds of violence, which caused sanguinary struggles in the streets of the town, and even in the precincts of the Episcopal Palace. The bishop and his chapter applied to the Pope, Boniface VIII, who applied to the king, Philip the Handsome, to put an end to these scandalous disturbances. Philip the Handsome, in his turn, applied to the Parliament of Paris, which, after inquiry, deprived the town of Léon of every right of commune and college under whatsoever name. The king did not like to execute this decree in all its rigor. He granted the burghers of Léon a charter which maintained them provisionally in the enjoyment of their political rights, but with this destructive clause. Said commune and said shrivalty shall be in force only so far as shall be our pleasure. For nearly thirty years, 
from Philip the Handsome to Philip of Valois, the bishops and burghers of Léon were in litigation before the crown of France, the former for the maintenance of the commune of Léon in its precarious condition and at the king's good pleasure, the latter for the recovery of its independent and durable character. At last, in 1331, Philip of Valois, considering that the olden commune of Léon, by reason of certain misdeeds and excesses, notorious, enormous, and detestable, had been removed and put down forever, by decree of the court of our most clear lord and uncle, King Philip the Handsome, confirmed and approved by our most dear lords, King Philip and Charles, whose souls are with God, we, on great deliberation of our council, have ordained that no commune, corporation, college, shrievalty, mayor, juryman, or any other estate or symbol belonging thereto, be at any time set up or established at Léon. By the same ordinance, the municipal administration of Léon was put under the sole authority of the king and his delegates, and to blot out all remembrance of the old and independence of the commune, a later ordinance forbade that the tower from which the two huge communal bells had been removed should thenceforth be called Belfry Tower. The history of the commune of Léon is that of the majority of the towns which, in northern and central France, struggled from the 11th to the 14th century to release themselves from feudal opposition and violence. Cambrai, Beauvais, Amiens, Soissons, Rheims, Vézelay, and several other towns displayed at this period a great deal of energy and perseverance in bringing their lords to recognize the most natural and the most necessary rights of every human creature and community. But within their walls dissensions were carried to extremity, and existence was ceaselessly tempestuous and troublous. The burghers were hasty, brutal, and barbaric, as barbaric as the lords against whom they were defending their liberties. Amongst these mayors, sheriffs, jurats, and magistrates of different degrees, and with different titles, set up in the communes, Many came before long to exercise dominion arbitrarily, violently, and in their own personal interests. The lower orders were in a habitual state of jealousy and sedition of a ruffianly kind toward the rich, the heads of the labor market, the controllers of capital and of work. This reciprocal violence, this anarchy, these internal evils and dangers, with their incessant renewals, called incessantly for intervention from without, and when, after releasing themselves from oppression and iniquity coming from above, the burghers fell a prey to pillage and massacre coming from below, they sought for a fresh protector to save them from this fresh evil. Hence that frequent recourse to the king, the great suzerain whose authority could keep down the bad magistrates of the commune, or reduce the mob to order, and hence also before long, the progressive downfall, or, at any rate, the utter enfeeblement of those communal liberties so painfully won. France was at that stage of existence and of civilization at which security can hardly be purchased save at the price of liberty. We have a phenomenon peculiar to modern times in the provident and persistent effort to reconcile security with liberty, and the bold development of individual powers with the regular maintenance of public order. This admirable solution of the social problem, still so imperfect and unstable in our time, was unknown in the Middle Ages. 
liberty was then so stormy and so fearful that people conceived before long, if not a disgust for it, at any rate a horror of it, and sought at any price a political regimen which would give them some security, the essential aim of the social estate. When we arrive at the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 14th century, we see a host of communes falling into decay or entirely disappearing. They cease really to belong to and govern themselves. Some, like Léon, Cambrai, Beauvais, and Rheim, fought a long while against decline and tried more than once to re-establish themselves in all their independence. But they could not do without the king's support in their resistance to their lords, laic, or ecclesiastical and they were not in a condition to resist the kingship which had grown whilst they were perishing. Others, Moulin and Soissons, for example, in 1320 and 1335, perceived their weakness early, and themselves requested the king to deliver them from their communal organization, and itself assume their administration. And so it is about this period, under St. Louis and Philip the Handsome, that there appear in the collection of acts of the French kingship those great ordinances which regulate the administration of all communes within the kingly domains. Hitherto the kings had ordinarily dealt with each town severally, and as the majority were almost independent, or invested with privileges of different kiwis and carefully respected, neither the king nor any great suzerain dreamed of prescribing general rules for communal regimen nor of administering, after a uniform fashion, all the communes in their domains. It was under St. Louis and Philip the Handsome that general regulations on this subject began. The French communes were associations too small and too weak to suffice for self-maintenance and self-government amidst the disturbances of the great Christian community, and they were too numerous and too little enlightened to organize themselves into one vast confederation capable of giving them a central government. The communal liberties were not in a condition to found in France a great republican community. To the kingship appertained the power and fell the honor of presiding over the formation and the fortunes of the French nation. But the kingship did not alone accomplish this great work. At the very time that the communes were perishing and the kingship was growing, a new power, a new social element, the Third Estate, was springing up in France, and it was called to take a far more important place in the history of France, and to exercise far more influence upon the fate of the French fatherland than it had been granted to the communes to acquire during their short and incoherent existence. End of Chapter 19, Part 4 Recording by Alan Winteroud Boom Coach dot blogspot dot com